Good evening, I'm Sharon Dunn, and this is Ideas. Tonight we present the third program in our series, The Politics of Information. In this program, David Cayley examines foreign news and the ideology which gives it shape and substance. The Politics of Information, Part 3, Here Be Monsters. There still exist maps drawn in the 14th century which show the strange, wonderful, and disturbing world which the Europeans of that date imagined existed beyond their boundaries. Here, for example, is an excerpt from the travels of Sir John Mandeville describing the inhabitants of the islands beyond India. In one of these isles toward the south dwell folk of foul stature and of cursed kind that have no heads, and their eyes be in their shoulders, and in another isle be folk that have the face all flat, all plain, without nose and without mouth, and in another isle be folk that go upon their hands and their feet as beasts, and they be all skinned and feathered, and they will leap as lightly into trees and from tree to tree as they be squirrels or apes. At the edge of this fabulous world dwelt gorgons, dragons, and sea monsters. And it is the thesis of my program tonight that in some ways they dwell there still. Feathered men no longer leap lightly from tree to tree, and the map has become a television set. But the images which flicker there are still, like Mandeville's strange beings, compounded of rumor, speculation, and self-interest. There is, for example, the figure of Colonel Qaddafi of Libya, often described in our media as a madman, sometimes only as a fool. When Italian journalist Oriana Falacci wrote about Qaddafi in an article given prominent display by the Toronto Globe and Mail last fall, she didn't actually claim the man had feathers, but she did describe him as a poor thing with no more intelligence than a chicken. Two months later, Qaddafi had become, as the Christian Science Monitor put it, a global threat. A Libyan hit team had allegedly slipped into the United States via Canada, according to some reports, and was gunning for President Reagan. The story was almost certainly fanciful, at least, no shred of substantive evidence was ever presented in its favor. But at the time, the president assured the doubtful that the threat was real. Our information on this entire matter has come from not one, but several widespread sources, and we have complete confidence in it and that the threat was real. The story got good play in Canada, and better in the United States. In New York, where I happened to be at the time, the tabloids had a field day, splashing the story all over their front pages. One of the people I had gone to New York to see was Edward Said, a professor of comparative literature at Columbia University, a Palestinian Arab born in Jerusalem, and the author of a number of books, including, most recently, Covering Islam, a study of American media coverage of the Middle East. I asked him about Colonel Qaddafi, whose name you will notice he pronounces rather differently than we have so far learned to do. Qazafi is a person who's not known. I mean, very little is known about his background or what the country's about or the history of Libya or anything like that. And it's a, it's a wonderful instance of, a, of a, what is, in fact, a kind of neutral fact 
being turned into a devil, you know, and, and being made a kind of gratuitous instance of international terrorism for no particular reason, except that he is obviously a foreign devil and that our foreign policy requires people like that. That's one thing. The second thing is that uh, Khazafi is a Muslim, you know, and I think that around him is a kind of aura of, you know, Muslim fundamentalism. So he obviously plays that role too. He is the, he is the, the symbol of, of a kind of classical, um, militant and scary Islamic, you know, offstage uh, monster. But there's underneath both of those two, if I might just continue, there's a third thing, and that is obviously that he serves a tremendously important domestic function, and that is that at the very same time now, as, even as we're talking, that there is supposed to be a, a Libyan hit team, you know, in the country justifying all sorts of security precautions with no evidence, whatever. It is also exactly the same time that the administration is trying to pass a, a new internal security bill at the, whose author is Daniel Patrick Moynihan, repealing many of the safeguards against domestic surveillance and, you know, and uh, bug telephones and so on against the American sort of populace. And what, what, what fascinates and, and, and astounds me at the same time is how nobody in the press has made the association between the sudden appearance of a Libyan hit team in this country and the passing of the attempt to pass this new bill, uh, with Moynihan serving both as the sort of, um, as the advocate of the bill and the man who is accusing the Libyans at the same time. I mean, so that the domestic uses of, of a figure like Kazafi, who is, you know, who's at one ought to say it is obviously a rather erratic and, and peculiar young man. Uh, but to, turning, to turn him into this kind of symbol of, of something out of Dostoevsky and the Bible uh, has, has led, you know, the entire, it seems to me, the entire press corps astray. I mean, and the, the obvious, uh, you know, both foreign policy and domestic uses of this um, don't seem to get very much attention. I mean, I think it's really a, an, an aspect of the, both of the culture and of the, and of the press itself an aspect of the culture and of the press itself. The culture presents, virtually ready-made, the image of the Arab, a sort of folk enemy, well adapted for a walk-on role as a monster. The press, for its part, needs an assured supply of simple, safe, and dramatic stories. The two things interlock. Colonel Qaddafi appears, uncomplicated and unencumbered by context, to play a role already written for him, a role largely determined by racial and ideological preconceptions. Like Sir John Mandeville, the farther we go from our own shores, the more freely may we invent the world in what we conceive to be our own interest. This is not to say, of course, that the world does not exist, but only that we arrange the facts of which it is composed according to the frameworks which we bring to bear on its interpretation. The point is developed by Stuart Hall, founder of the influential Center for the Study of Contemporary Culture at England's Birmingham University, and now a professor of sociology at the Open University. In the social world, it is very hard to distinguish a pure, isolated fact from the, f the, the ways in which we interpret and understand those facts. I think in the journalistic world, if I might say so, it is an utter simplification to believe that when you pick up a newspaper, you can make a clear line of distinction between the facts about the Vietnam War and the interpretations about the Vietnam War. The interpretations have been in at the beginning. They've framed the way in which the journalist who's reporting the story has seen what he has seen. 
I'm not saying that he's making up what he's seeing. What I'm saying is that the meaning of what he's seeing is a matter of ideological interpretation. It's a matter of, I don't need to say ideological, it's a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of the way in which things are defined. It's a matter especially of the way in which one fact is connected to another. When you say that's the reason for that, you're positing the causal connection between one event and another, which is, of course, I mean, it relies on the fact that you think that things are connected in this way. So the fact-value distinction is one which in the social sciences in general I'm rather suspicious of, and when you find it in journalistic writing in the form of there's fact and then there's opinion, I don't believe that simple distinction exists. So I want to say that one must always ask, what are the facts when seen from that point of view? And you must bring the point of view or the position from which things are defined and interpreted into account alongside the facts that you're dealing with. And I would say ideological struggle or the politics of ideology, which goes on in and around the media all the time, is the struggle to win the right to define things in a certain way or the struggle on the other side, to displace one definition of events and replace it with another which suits your interests or your values or your policies better than the one that was in existence before you came into the field. The news, then, is not just a recitation of facts. It is the record of a contest between ideological frameworks. In the vast and varied world from which foreign news is selected, there is a virtual infinity of possible facts of which we are able to attend to only a very small proportion. It follows that most of the interesting questions about foreign news have to do not with the facts per se, but with how these facts are selected and organized. And it is important to note that the act of interpretation by which this is done is an act of will, and therefore an expression of power. An example may make the point clearer. In 1978 and 79, our media were full of the story of the Vietnamese refugees who came to be called the boat people. Of all the refugees in the world at the time, they were only a very small proportion, and their condition was far from being the worst. Nevertheless, it was the boat people who captured the media spotlight. Noam Chomsky, the distinguished professor of linguistics at MIT. The boat people issue became a significant one in the, in the inter, in international forums and so on in late 1978. And at that time, the number of boat people was in the tens of thousands. I don't remember the exact numbers, but maybe in the neighborhood of 50, 60,000, something like that. Um, what proportion was that of refugees? Well, in 1977, there were over 100,000 boat people who fled from the Philippines to uh, Sabah. I don't remember. I never even saw a mention of that in the Western press. Uh, in early 1978, there were about 200,000 people who were driven out of Burma into Bangladesh by a marauding army. Well, whatever uh, the boat people had suffered in Vietnam, it wasn't that. You know, nothing. Nobody ever made any such charges. Again, that was you know a few lines in the back pages of the New York Times. As far as the total number of refugees in that period is concerned. It's probably on the order of maybe 10 to 15 million or something like that. Some, some numbers, I mean, don't take these numbers too seriously, but something approximately of that, of that in that neighborhood. Uh, as far as, say, boat people, well, from 1972, uh, large numbers of boat people were coming from Haiti to the United States, uh, fleeing from the 
poorest and one of the cruelest dictatorships in the in the in the hemisphere, supported by the United States all the way back. Uh, they were fleeing to Florida. They were coming 800 miles through shark-infested waters, and uh, uh, most of them were just turned back. I think a couple of dozen were permitted entry, something like that, from 72 to about 79. And later it became a bit more of a scandal, and a few more were admitted. But uh, other thousands, and nobody knows how many because so many of them were illegal, but certainly in the thousands, if not tens of thousands. Again, no, if they were caught, they were simply sent back. Uh, the, the, you have to be the right kind of boat person to get uh, to become a, a symbol of terrorism and violence. Again, it has to be it has to be nefarious terror, not constructive terror that you're fleeing from. What Chomsky means by the terms constructive and nefarious terror, we will come to in more detail in a few minutes. The larger point, obviously, is that not all the news is fit to print. And what I want to draw attention to in this program are two of the primary ways in which this process of reduction takes place. The first of these reducing valves is the Cold War, which not only divides the culturally familiar world of the West into opposed camps, but also provides a yardstick by which events in the culturally alien societies of the Third World can be assessed. The second reducing valve is described by Edward Said as Orientalism in a book of the same name, in which he examines the ways in which European societies have tried to understand, domesticate, and control the Islamic societies of the Middle East. The Orient is really not simply a place, but a set of characteristics, so that you can talk about the Oriental mind, the Oriental soul, the Oriental passion for sensuality, cruelty, etc. And that has become a kind of cultural fixture, and it, it, it makes it possible to use large generalizations to um, reduce a huge amount of humanity to a simple set of characteristics, most of them, I think, negative, you know, so that anything we don't like, like the yellow hordes or the yellow peril or, you know, the Islamic uh, mob or any of that stuff is all covered by this general style of thought called Orientalism, which is, you know, a way of dealing with the large and the imponderable, distant and different. A current example of what Said would call Orientalism comes from the pages of the Toronto Star. The story ran on the front page of the Star's editorial section on December 13th of last year under the headline, Violence Mars the Way of Islam. Accompanying it was a large colored drawing of four Arabs walking in procession, each with a knife stuck in the back of the one in front of him. The story was slugged from the Star's Special News Services and was written by Raphael Patai. The occasion for the story was the assassination of Anwar Sadat. The roots of the Muslim proclivity to settling differences with the dagger, the sword, the gun, or the bomb, either individually or in groups, go far back into Arab history. Feuding and intertribal warfare were age-old traditions in Arabia in the 7th century when Muhammad founded Islam and converted all the Arab tribes to his religion. Although the Arabian prophet made internal peace obligatory, this lofty goal has eluded him and his followers throughout the 13 centuries of Islamic history. On the contrary, the pre-Islamic heritage of belligerence survived. It was reinforced by a rapid spread of Islam, 
The Arab proclivity toward conflict was exported into all the territories that became Arabized, or at least Islamized, and it became a common feature of all Islamic peoples. What has happened in this article is that an event, the assassination of Anwar Sadat, has been abstracted from its historical context and attributed instead to an unvarying racial and religious character. Instead of being seen as a historical phenomenon, subject like all historical phenomena to change, growth, and decay, Islam becomes what Edward Said calls an acutely disturbing essence. A similar and perhaps even more striking example comes from a confidential cable dispatched to Washington during the course of the Iranian Revolution by the American chargé d'affaires in Tehran, Bruce Langan. Its subject was the difficulty of negotiating with the Iranians, whom he calls Persians. Perhaps the single dominant aspect of the Persian psyche is an overriding egoism. Its antecedents lie in the long Iranian history of instability and insecurity, which put a premium on self-preservation. The practical effect of it is an almost total Persian preoccupation with self and leaves little room for understanding points of view other than one's own. The reverse of this particular psychological coin is a pervasive unease about the nature of the world in which one lives. Each individual must be constantly alert for opportunities to protect himself against the malevolent forces that would otherwise be his undoing. Coupled with these psychological limitations is a general incomprehension of causality. Islam, with its emphasis on the omnipotence of God, appears to account at least in major part for this phenomenon. Even those Iranians educated in the Western style frequently have difficulty grasping the interrelationship of events. What is most noteworthy about Bruce Langan's cable is that even as he wrote, the United States was being swept up in events in Iran which it had neither foreseen nor understood. But this presumably did not cause Mr. Langan to accuse himself of an incomprehension of causality or to blame his incomprehension on his religion. Edward Said. One of the things that I think underlies a great deal of what is written about the part of the world and the people who live in the Orient is that history and the changes of human history and, the, and, and, and things like ordinary human experience, that is to say suffering, um, joy, uh, change, are, are simply not to be associated with the Orient because at bottom the Oriental remains Oriental. And I, I, I'm, I was fascinated by this and I'm, I'm still quite mystified as to why people need that kind of stability. Uh, I mean the idea that the Orient should not change is one that I find very, very uh, tricky to understand. But there it is, and you see it from one end of the 19th century to the other. You see it from one end of this century to the other. The people still refer to what I consider to be abstractions that are basically unchanging, as if they have a life of their own that seems not to be historical. It's considered that for the Orient, uh, you know, the idea that he's a wog after all, or they don't have the same sense of human life that we do, or that they don't feel the same things that we do about torture, and so all of these things. Um, those remain quite quite unchanged, and I, I, I find it very hard often to explain it, but, but it is a persistent motif. Um, 
it's a kind of eschatology, you know, that you divide the world, or Manichaeanism, I guess, divide the world into good and evil, and that is usually associated with the evil. Orientalism, of course, also has its ideological uses. It obscures the application of imperial power, for example, by substituting simple, abstract explanations for complex historical ones. In the case of Bruce Langan's cable to Washington, using the Persian psyche to account for the behavior of the Iranians obscures the fact that what the Iranians were primarily reacting to was 25 years of neo-colonial domination by the United States. A similar dynamic can be found in the application of Cold War criteria to the interpretation of foreign news. The American role in the Third World is effaced, obscured, or apologized for. The role of official enemies is highlighted and condemned. Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman have studied this phenomenon in an impressively documented two-volume work called The Political Economy of Human Rights. Here, Noam Chomsky describes the basic outlines of their study. Reviewing you know, atrocities that go on in the third world, of which there are many, uh, we compared systematically those for which the United States had a major responsibility and those for which some official enemy had a major responsibility. Uh, and there are many comparable cases. And we asked the obvious question, how, does, how do the media deal with these two cases? Well, characteristically, in the cases where the United States has a major responsibility, uh, the technique is uh, to repeat government propaganda, to suppress the facts, to conceal, and to not talk about it at all, the usual thing. Or if it's discussed, to provide a complex web of apologetics and justification and to diminish the to try to diminish the character of the atrocities, uh, sometimes to zero, and certainly to conceal the U.S. role in them. That's the standard device. And the, in contrast, when we find often quite comparable atrocities uh, that can be attributed to an official enemy, the, uh, what we find is a uh, laser-like focus of attention, uh, great uh, humanistic outcries, uh, vast exaggeration, fabrication of evidence, uh, utilization of evidence that we would, would be dismissed with ridicule if it were uh, proposed in the case of American atrocities and so on. And uh, while you can find small exceptions to this, the pattern is so overwhelming that uh, I think it, you can almost call it a, you know, one of the few laws of the social sciences. The Political Economy of Human Rights is a horrifying book. It is also very thoroughly researched and documented. Chomsky and Herman divide terror in the Third World into the bitterly ironic categories of benign, constructive, and nefarious. Two events which Chomsky is going to refer to in his description of these categories may be unfamiliar. The first is a massacre that took place in the African state of Burundi in 1972. It involved the murder by government forces of members of one tribal group in numbers estimated by the American ambassador at between 100,000 and 250,000. The second is a massacre which took place in East Timor after the Indonesian government invaded the former Portuguese colony in 1975. Fully one-sixth of the population may have been killed. Noam Chomsky. We said that you can roughly characterize terror as the term is used into three categories. Uh, benign terror, by that we meant uh, the kind of terror that takes place, say, in uh, in the genocidal massacres in Burundi or Timor, where, where the massacres are carried out 
uh, by U either they have no direct relationship to U.S. interests or they are carried out by states with which we have reasonable relations that we don't want to prejudice. In those cases, the, the massacres and the torture and the terror and so on are uh, uh, considered benign in that they're not particularly noteworthy or worthy or nor do they deserve criticism. In fact, one tends to suppress them. A uh, striking case, the, the case to which we gave most attention in the book was the case of Timor, where there was a uh, near genocidal attack now mounting to true genocide, I think, in the current stage, uh, carried out by uh, by an, an Indonesian army that was almost completely armed by the United States in the certain knowledge that they, these arms would be used for genocide. Uh, it was provided for with diplomatic support by the United States, uh, not because any major foreign policy goal was achieved by the massacre of the Timorese, but really because it was irrelevant as compared with the overriding interest of maintaining good relations with Indonesia. That's an example of what we called benign terror. The second category, constructive terror, refers to terror that is actually applauded because it contributes directly to some crucial foreign policy goal. Again, Chomsky cites an example from Indonesia. The uh, huge massacres in the mid-60s uh, of maybe half a million to a million people, mostly landless peasants, uh, were positively welcomed in the United States uh, and, in fact, are regarded, were regarded at the time in congressional testimony and the press and so on as a major achievement of American policy uh, with some clucking of tongues about the, you know, the Orientals who don't value life and so on. But basically what happened was regarded as a positive achievement of American policy and as a justification uh, for the uh, American presence in Vietnam, which provided a shield beyond, behind which these constructive developments could take place. The constructive development at that time was the, that the, that the uh, incredible massacre uh, wiped out the major popular party, namely the Communist Party in Indonesia, and uh, placed the control of the country in the hands of a group of gangsters who were quite willing to sell it out to, to, to foreign plunder, and they destroyed the major popular organizations that might have stood in the way of that. So that was constructive terror. Uh, nefarious terror, on the other hand, is terror carried out by opponents, by enemies. Uh, so, for example, Pol Pot's massacres, that's nefarious terror, or uh, uh, the North Vietnamese uh, land reform in the 1950s, which was alleged to have killed, uh, pick your source, uh, hundreds of thousands of people. That was nefarious terror. And uh, strikingly, we not infrequently discover that the nefarious terror was, is, either didn't exist, it was vastly exaggerated. The North Vietnamese land reform is a case in point. Uh, there have, this was a major propaganda campaign of the United States through the late 50s and the early 60s uh, to try to justify the American attack against South Vietnam, which was then in process. Part of the justification for that was uh, the appeal to the North Vietnamese land reform, which it turns out after several careful studies were done years later, uh, was, uh, um, uh, was vastly exaggerated in the propaganda literature, may have led to the deaths of uh, thousands of people, maybe five, ten thousand people, something like that, but certainly nothing like the, say, 500,000 that were created by the, American by the American propaganda apparatus. And in fact, that's been pretty well conceded by now. So nefarious terror is the kind that's carried out by enemies, and that's what we get uh, irate about. When Noam Chomsky refers to the propaganda apparatus, he does not mean just the information machinery of the American government itself, but also the willing complicity of the press and other media, 
the point is illustrated by a case we referred to earlier, the Libyan hit squad story, whose likeliest source was the CIA. Despite the lack of any supporting evidence, the story was prominently displayed throughout the North American media. The play this story got in Canada also illustrates a second point, which is our lack of an independent point of view in foreign affairs. Part of the reason for this is the absence of a substantial body of foreign correspondents able to offset the preponderant American point of view. The problem was noted by the recent Royal Commission on Newspapers. Its chairman was Tom Kent. There's no question uh, the, uh, the amount of coverage of, uh, of foreign news by, uh, by Canadians is very, very limited. Um, I believe it's uh, true to say that you know, one Japanese newspaper has more reporters in New York uh, than the whole uh, uh, Canadian uh, media have uh, uh, in the whole of the world. The disparities in coverage really are uh, amazing. It's important to say that we do have some foreign correspondents, of course, but they cover the world very thinly. The consequence for Canada has been what Vancouver writer Ben Metcalf once aptly characterized as a blind date with history. Throughout the Cold War and its many interludes of real war in the Third World, Canada has attended mainly and often exclusively to the information media of the United States. And according to James Aronson, in a book entitled The Press and the Cold War, during this period, the American media showed a spirit of almost servile partisanship. Aronson, who teaches at Hunter College in New York City, finds the origins of this phenomena long before the beginning of the Cold War proper, in the period directly following the Russian Revolution. Perhaps the most damning indictment of the American press at that time and almost since was the work done by Walter Lippmann and Charles Murs uh, called A Test of the News, which appeared in the New Republic magazine, a liberal weekly, in uh, 1920, August 1920. And they undertook a study of three years of the New York Times and its coverage of the Bolshevik Revolution and the early years of the new Soviet state. And the um, critique was absolutely devastating. It um, demonstrated that the Times, which even then was one of the most prestigious newspapers in the country, probably today the most prestigious, had um, toppled um, Petrograd, uh, now Leningrad, at least six times and Moscow had been burned down to the ground three times. The um, Soviet armies were deep inside Poland at a time when the Polish armies were deep inside the Soviet Union, and so on. And uh, the news, as it seemed to me, was uh, not the news, but what the news people wanted the news to be. They, um, they were victims of their own... Uh, their own prejudices, and even back then they had bought the Cold War theory. What the Cold War theory holds at bottom is that the world is divided into two monolithic blocks, the one essentially evil, the other essentially good. The emphasis on essences is suggestive of Edward Said's earlier definition of Orientalism. This theory, as James Aronson amply documents in his book, 
has been the fundamental influence on American foreign reporting since the Second World War. But the theory did suffer serious setbacks during the period of the Vietnam War, when the image of American power as something innocent and benign became harder and harder to sustain. Noam Chomsky argues that it was mainly in this sense of damage to the American image that the Indochina War can be considered to have been a defeat for the United States. The United States suffered only a partial defeat in Indochina. In fact, there was also a partial victory, and that's very important to bear in mind. Uh, the United States did, uh, the, you have to remember why the war was fought. I mean, conquering Vietnam was not, um, is not a major concern of the United States. They would have liked to do it so that they would have liked to incorporate Indochina within the American system, much as Thailand is, say, but that's not a crucial concern. The real concern was that uh, successful development within a nationalist, communist-led framework might provide a model for others. That's what's the real content of the domino theory. And that danger has been eliminated. The United States did succeed in, uh, in conducting such a devastating attack against Indochina that the chances that it will recover in the foreseeable future, if ever, are very slight. Uh, and uh, American policy has been designed to making sure that this victory sticks, that is to try to maximize repression and suffering, and to try to act to, to uh, undercut not only that we provide no reparation or aid, uh, but we also have blocked aid from international agencies, uh, from others, and so on, in an effort to make sure that the people suffer as much as possible and that only the more brutal elements will survive so that then, uh, you know, humanitarian souls in the West can lament the authoritarianism in Indochina and so on. These are the, uh, uh, and, and this has very largely succeeded. In this sense, it was a very substantial victory for the United States. Uh, still, there was a defeat, and the defeat was mostly at home. In fact, there are, by now, technical terms even for what happened in the West. Uh, they're called the Vietnam Syndrome and the Crisis of Democracy. The Vietnam Syndrome refers to the unwillingness of large parts of the population to accept the moral costs of massacre and destruction. And that's very dangerous. It's very dangerous when large parts of the population feel a sense of solidarity and concern for the victims of imperial aggression, uh, because then, you know, because that poses barriers to the free use of terror, violence, and aggression as instruments of state policy. And that Vietnam syndrome was quite severe uh, and had to be overcome. In fact, a large part of the 1970s was devoted to overcoming uh, this Vietnam syndrome. The problem posed by the Vietnam syndrome was how to rehabilitate the image of American power, both in the world and, crucially, in the eyes of American citizens. The massacres by the Khmer Rouge government of Cambodia provided a perfect opportunity. Like the boat people and the much-publicized re-education camps in Vietnam, they seemed retrospectively to justify the American war against Indochina. Noam Chomsky, in The Political Economy of Human Rights, tries to assess what the scale of the Khmer Rouge terror actually was. Estimates of the number of people massacred ranged from a few thousand, from thousands, low estimate, uh, to many millions. Now that's a pretty wide range of, of estimates. And in fact, if you look at where those estimates came from, it's a little surprising. The lowest estimates were given by, that I know of, were given by the Far Eastern Economic Review. 
which is a very prestigious and uh, highly respected and uh, journal which is hardly pro-communist. In fact, it's sort of like the Wall Street Journal. Uh, no one would accuse it of being radical. Their estimate was, their reporter Nayan Chanda uh, reported in my, around late 1976 or so, with, when most of this evidence was coming out, that the number of people killed was possibly thousands. Uh, in January 1979, the Far Eastern Economic Review produced uh, its yearbook for that year. This was at the time of the uh, fall of the Pol Pot regime, which estimated the population at 8.2 million. Uh, now, that's considerably higher than the 1975 population. So their estimate at the time was that the population had, in fact, increased during the Pol Pot period. Well, that was the low estimate of massacres. Then at the high range, you had people like, for example, Jean Lacouture, who wrote a very article that became quite famous, in which he claimed that, according to Francois Ponchot, a French priest who'd written an important book on Cambodia, he claimed that, according to Ponchot, uh, the Cambodian regime had boasted of having killed, had boasted of having killed about two million people. That was a high estimate. Uh, Lacouture, a few months later, uh, conceded that this was, that there was no basis in the book for this, that he, that the figure was wrong, he just made it up. Uh, in fact, he had misread other numbers, including the numbers of dead during the war and so on and so forth. And he said, well, maybe the numbers killed were in the thousands or hundreds of thousands. But nevertheless, his high estimate, two million, even after he retracted it as having no basis in fact, nevertheless, that continued to be the figure that was used quite generally. Now, in the middle, in the, in the intermediate range between thousands killed, Far Eastern Economic Review, and two million killed, Lacouture's fabricated claim, which was then withdrawn, you had, for example, the, uh, the assessment by U.S. intelligence, which was certainly the most knowledgeable source, and in retrospect, probably the most honest source. The CIA came out with a uh, demographic study in May 1980, I think, about then, uh, which is their sort of final wrap-up on the whole uh, situation. And they concluded then that uh, the number of people killed by Pol Pot was between 50 and 100,000. But most of the media were not interested in cautious estimates, any more than they were interested in undertaking comparisons with the unremarked but contemporaneous massacres in East Timor. Historical context, which might have been provided by considering the role of the United States in reducing Cambodia to ruin, was almost completely lacking. Noam Chomsky. The summary story is that, as is typical for nefarious terror, the kind carried out by enemies, the weakest and most flimsy evidence was used. Uh, fabricated evidence was frequently used. Fabricated photographs, fabricated interviews, and so on were frequently used and uh, widely distributed in an effort to prove the, uh, you know, the ultimate uh, evil of the enemy. Uh, and in fact, the, the actual massacres and terror, which were quite serious, uh, was vastly inflated and, 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 and was given a, a huge focus of attention. The low estimates, like the Far Eastern Economic Review, uh, I think were never, at least I never saw them mentioned in the press. They were disregarded because they were too low to be of any use. On the other hand, the high estimates, say La Couture's two million figure, that continued to be given as a fact, just a straight fact, uh, though not only was there no evidence for it, but La Couture himself had retracted it as having no basis. And in the, in the later period, 1979, if you check the press, 
uh, this not only the American, but also the international press, you'll find that the standard figure used was that Pol Pot had reduced the population of Cambodia from seven to four million. That was a standard figure used. Well, you know, where'd that come from? That came from Hanoi propaganda. Well, Hanoi propaganda has rarely been regarded as a highly credible source in the United States, uh, in particular in the midst of a major war in which, of course, they have a great stake in, uh, in showing the evil and horrors of the enemy. Nevertheless, despite those facts, this figure was taken, widely repeated. I mean, it was repeated in journals like Le Monde, for example, as being certain truth, you know, unquestionable truth. I mean, th this is a perfect example of the way in which the Western propaganda system uses evidence of such a low level of credibility that it would just dismiss it out of hand if it were directed against our crimes. But of course, it's accepted and trumpeted when it can be used as part of the uh, process of defaming an official enemy. Noam Chomsky, needless to say, did not make himself popular by trying to set the Cambodian atrocities into historical context. I was once called up by Time magazine. Uh, must have been around 1978 or so. Uh, they were running their annual uh, story on, um, you know, how awful Camp Pol Pot was. And the person who called me up was trying to extract from me a statement uh, to the effect that, uh, that there hadn't been any massacres. Because they just needed somebody to come out with that statement. Then if somebody could come out with that statement, they could say, oh, it's just like the 1930s, people are denying gulag, you know, that's the usual line. Well, no, they couldn't find anybody to come out with that statement. So then if you look at the article they wrote, they simply claimed that this is a widespread view. They didn't attribute it to anybody because they couldn't find anybody. But they nevertheless start off the article by saying, uh, just as George Bernard Shaw, you know, or somebody denied Soviet atrocities, now everybody's denying you know, the Cambodian atrocities, and isn't that awful, uh, communists, etc., etc. I mean, it's just necessary to have adversaries. For example, there's been a huge flood of lies about my alleged statements on this regard. Nobody ever looks at what I wrote, because that would be like, you know, looking at the facts about what, say, the Far Eastern Economic Review wrote. But it's just so useful to have, so, so necessary, really, to, ha to show that you somehow, you know, you're defending truth and justice against powerful adversaries when you say that Pol Pot massacred people. You know, it's been so necessary to put forth this pose that adversaries have simply been invented and created even when they don't exist, because, in fact, virtually none exist. One of the most striking aspects of the media coverage of Cambodia after 1975 was the way in which it effaced the American role in Indochina before that date. The brutality of the Khmer Rouge regime was not seen as a product of the brutalization of Cambodia by the prolonged and savage American bombing, any more than the policies of the regime were seen as something dictated by the economic consequences of the American war. No more was it appreciated that much of the killing was directed against hated collaborators with the American-backed Lon Nol government. None of this justifies what was done, but it does make it comprehensible and in some way human. As it is, we are left only with a monster, abstract, incomprehensible, and quintessentially evil. This point from which we began brings us back to the Islamic world, which was also a focus of American concern in the late 1970s, and where a very similar dynamic was at work. Again, the American media attempted to gloss over the effects of the application of American power, and again they faced, in both Egypt and Iran, an incomprehensible result. 
Edward Said develops the point by comparing the careers of Anwar Sadat and the Shah of Iran. A good way of getting at it is actually to compare the, the, the status in the sort of American consciousness of the Shah on the one hand and Anwar Sadat on the other. Now, I think it's probably unfair to Sadat to say that they're similar people. And obviously they appeared in different societies, different cultures, different histories. But there's a certain, what is interesting is the extent to which both of these figures really became the same kind of person. And they simply displaced a lot of things, um, namely histories and societies that were, uh, that were lurking behind them and that they, in their own place, had forcefully kind of repressed. I mean, it, it's, it's, not, it's not, I don't think, a co entirely a co coincidence that almost the last act that Sadat performed was to jail a, a very wide swath of, of opposition people. There were a lot of professional types. There was the most prominent journalists in the Arab world. There were many politicians, some officers, and so on and so forth. And also the Shah, among the last things he did was to simply, um, you know, to indiscriminately put away a large section of his population. The administration of the government, in, whether with regard to Iran or with regard to Egypt, was interested in imposing its will on that part of the world, and it suited its, its policy to have a leader of that sort who was a client in the end, and whose very presence there simply did away with the historical and social processes of the society which he allegedly represented. Um, and this kind of self-induced blindness, which the press went along with, created the surprise when, in the end, that person seemed to be incapable of holding down all the opposition that, that, he, had, that he had put away for a long time, and the society came back in a, in a form, in the case of Iran, that was obviously exaggerated and intensified by many, many, many years of hatred for the United States, which had, which had been correctly seen as making the Shah possible, you see, so that you get the kind of the chauvinism and the, and, the, and the blind kind of hatred of the United States and of everything suggesting the United States in, the, in Khomeini's Iran. And the violence that has been given birth to in Iran is in direct proportion to the felt violence of United States support for the Shah. So the whole thing is just a horrible, um, a horrible scenario, it, it, I, I, in my opinion, inevitably produced by this desire to, to create surrogates and clients in, in a part of the world that really can't accommodate them very well, because it is, after all, a different part of the world with a different history, different uh, um, dynamic, and, and it, it, it's really all about, it's a struggle of will and power, and I think in the end it's one inevitably going to surprise the United States, which, or at least the, the power establishment in the United States, which, which wants to believe that the world can be, in fact, made over into the Sadats and the Shahs, and is always going to be surprised when these eminently, quote, reasonable men, unquote, are, are rejected and in some cases destroyed by their own societies. Anwar Sadat became, in the years after his visit to Israel, a great hero in the West, and again, particularly in the United States, where he caught an impressive figure in the American media. This adulation made it difficult for Western reporters to find in the assassination of Sadat anything more than yet another expression of the monster Islam. Edward Said. It is assumed that what, that what has happened is some very kind of uh, aberrant, some very uh, monstrous um, kind of irrational thing called Islam struck down Sadat in the same way that the Shah was struck down by the Islamic hordes, you see. So that instead of trying to understand 
the processes by which both the Shah and Sadat had become isolated in their alliance with the United States, in their accepting the kind of indiscriminate support which they were beginning to get from the United States, in which they were isolated from their neighbors, and in the case of both Sadat and the Shah, isolated from their own societies. Instead of analyzing that process, they then say, aha, the very fact that these people, these two men, were friends of the United States is a good thing. Therefore, we must try and understand why the society didn't, under, why didn't accept that. And instead of saying, well, the society didn't accept it because these people had become foreign to their own society, it's because there's something wrong with the society. It couldn't keep up with the modernizing, with the normalization, with the, all these other things that, that these rulers had done. And so they, they create this monster Islam. And the, it, precisely the same thing happened in the case of Egypt, you see. I mean, after Sadat, as happened with the Shah. You begin to look around for something called Islam, which can explain everything. But Islam, of course, is a cover for social processes which a reporter who's just come in from Spain or Thailand or, or whatever hasn't got time to figure out. So Islam and Audi rushes. And then, of course, all reporters more or less echo each other. I mean, that's perfectly natural. You know, just the scholars writing about English literature sort of echo each other. There's, a, there's an accepted consensus which everyone, you know, hews to. And that's what they do. And then, of course, they find interpreters who, who will answer their questions in the way that they're asked and say, well, isn't this all an aspect of Islamic frenzy? What we're, yes, Islamic frenzy. And we have a ritual which you know, and so it goes. It, it, it's, there's something almost comic about it, um, and of course it's encouraged by it's encouraged by the administration. I mean, by well, the government, which wants to speak in terms of the loss of Iran, the loss of Sadat, the loss of this, that, and the other thing, because these are all thought of uh, thought of as being part of and belonging to the United States. So you have this tremendously um, well orchestrated or almost symphonic. Um, you know, um, composition making rather profound sense on one level, but you know, totally uh, to those of us who live in 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 the Middle East or who come from there, uh, it seems completely ridiculous. Islamic fundamentalism has been the primary category which Western reporters have used to explain recent events in the Muslim countries of the Middle East. Articles appear under headlines like "The Return of Islam," as if it had somehow been away. But aside from the comforting suggestion of a kind of Middle Eastern moral majority, the term Islamic fundamentalism actually covers such a diversity of political views as to be almost meaningless. The true value of the term is ideological. What Islamic fundamentalism, in its ideological guise, covers over are nothing less than the real processes of history. When the people whom we have injured and displaced come back to challenge us, we disguise our own responsibility with convenient abstractions. They are terrorists. They are Islamic fundamentalists. They are always something other than the dialectical consequence of our own actions. And so the tragedy repeats itself. The process reached a kind of culmination with the captivity of the American hostages in Iran. And with Edward Said's commentary on these events, we conclude tonight's program. There's no question, first of all, that the taking of the hostages was an outrageous and kind of, in the long run, stupid thing. But it did serve a function within Iran. I mean, it was part of an enormously complicated power play, uh, of which the American embassy was the center, and the various forces, Beni Sadr, Qutbizadi, Khomeini, Fedain, etc., were all playing a role, fine. Uh, there was a lot of re revenge taking against the United States, an attempt to, to redress history by punishing the Americans who had ruled the country and imprisoning them. So it played a symbolic role within Iran. But in my opinion, the hysteria and the deliberately trumped up um, 
character, uh, the cosmic drama of the whole event, was an attempt to rescue the American role in the, in the, in the third world and to turn it from one of pillager, destroyer, manipulator, colonizer, uh, whatever you want to call it, which has been the history of American, the American role in the East, to transform that into the American as good guy victim. All they were doing was doing their job, these poor guys in the embassy. And all they were trying to do was to just mine the telex machines. They weren't spies. They weren't members of the CIA. They were just a, a mission, like any other foreign mission. And look what happened to them. And when we bring them back, we vindicate our role in the world, particularly in the East. And, and that's one of the most monstrous kinds of exaggerations and attempts to rewrite history that I think one could ever, ever experience. And the extent to which the press went along with this is, I think, one of the most shameful chapters in the history of, of, I think, modern journalism. But I think it also should be added that there were many people in the press who, were, who didn't go along with that. There were voices one could hear from time to time. But by and large, it was an overwhelming experience. And the end result of it was, and notice that the hostages have passed from our side. We don't know who they are anymore. If you mention the name of a couple of the well-known hostages at the time, you won't get even a flicker of recognition from the average um, television viewer today. But they played the role of asserting the American role in the world as innocent, benign, victimized. And I think it, that, that quite dialectically and directly brought Reaganism. Because Reaganism is now, we're not going to stand for any of our, uh, of our people being scapegoats anymore. We've been too good. We're now going to speak with a big stick. Hence Libya. We, w we will go on the offensive first. We're not going to be victimized. We're going to do the victimizing. And that man's a terrorist. That man's a Soviet agent. Those are, those are evil, and this is, we're going to deal with them accordingly. Let terrorists be aware that when the rules of international behavior are violated, our policy will be one of swift and effective retribution. In Iran, in Egypt, in Cambodia, the process is the same. We produce monsters and then claim their existence as the justification for our acts. From the feathered men who once leapt lightly through the trees to the abstractions of Orientalism and the Cold War, we continue to be haunted by our own projections. The Politics of Information, Part 3, Here Be Monsters. The program was written and narrated by David Cayley. Production, Max Allen. Studio Operations, Brian Hill. Another airport, another welcome, another way station on the hostages' return home. Heard on tonight's program were Edward Said, Stuart Hall, Noam Chomsky, Tom Kent, and James Aronson. Tears and hugs and that tune that has now become theirs tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. A reading list for this series is available. It includes books by all the people you heard tonight. To get your free copy, write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. For the 53 hostages, Bruce Rangan, the ranking American in Tehran. It is good to be back. Thank you, America, and God bless all of you.